It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to have his word open before us. Let's pray. I need your grace now, Father, to understand these things, to delight in these things, for these truths to rule in all the appropriate ways in our lives. The danger that we face as American believers is not that we make too much of the church, but that we have such a low view of her. And we seek to change that. I, I know that, that you want to change that. And so by your spirit, would you so move in our hearts that we would leave this place loving Jesus more, loving his church more, and knowing how loved we are by him. And change us, Father, change us in ways that cause us to be more devoted to one another, because it's not the building that's the church, it's the people. So may we be more devoted to the people who are the church here. May we serve one another, love one another, sacrifice for one another, get involved, ask hard questions, answer questions truthfully, that we might be a holy and pure church, not a perfect church, but one with which you are pleased long for that. Lord, I long for that. And so we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. And amen. Against the cry of leading evangelicals who prophesy that if the church does not reinvent itself, it will die within the next half century, and against the forces of darkness around the globe that are determined to discredit and ultimately destroy the church, Jesus makes one defying declaration. I will build my church. And I haven't said it yet in this series, but I'll say it now. I believe that's the only thing God's doing in the world. He is building his church. And I think the only thing that is Higher than that is that he is exalting Christ both in the salvation of those who believe and the condemnation of those who refuse to believe. The highest end is that Christ would be exalted in all things. Hence we have for ourselves this purpose statement for our church, which we haven't said in a few weeks, so let's say it now. It's on the board out here. It's in your bulletin. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. I believe that's our mission or that is our purpose because it is God's stated purpose. And we're going to see that especially when we finally get to Colossians coming up in who knows how long, but we'll get there. I don't want to go to Colossians today. I would like for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 to pick up where we left off. This is an important passage of Scripture for the church to have a firm grasp upon because we need to know that the success or failure of the church is not ultimately dependent on our intelligence, our creativity, our resources, our talent, our sheer determination, or anything else but simply upon the irrevocable promise of a sovereign Christ who said, I will build my church. The story and message of the New Testament is simply this, that God is building for himself a church made up of people of every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue by the power of his sovereign grace toward all who will trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ is passionate, more passionate about his church. And he is, he is as passionate about his church as any engaged, newly engaged man is toward his wife. He loves her. He can't wait for the day to come. And this is Jesus' love for his church. 
He is more resolved to bring her to maturity and usher her into the marriage supper of the Lamb than any human being could ever possibly be. Nothing in heaven or in earth or under the earth has the power to sabotage his plan. I will build my church. As we saw last week, the key phrase of this passage is the one that I have repeated a couple times already. I will build my church. This is the single statement that gives meaning to the rest of the text. And so let's refresh a little bit on what we learned last time. First, we considered the foundation of the church. Remember, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And I just remembered something. We have not read the text, have we? Because I didn't make a note to read the text. This is like the second time in my 25 years here. Let's stand together and read this text together. Matthew 16. Beginning with verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he said, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for Jesus, I'm sorry, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now you may be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And as I was saying about last week, the first thing we saw is the foundation of the church. This rock that Jesus mentions, which consists of the teaching and ministry of the apostles, Peter and the rest of the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and every believer being living stones in the house or in the temple that God is creating for the exaltation of Jesus. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. You can go back and look if you want. The second thing we learned last week is about the certainty of the church. And Jesus spoke with an authoritative determination. He didn't say, I hope the church gets built. He didn't say, I'll try my best to build the church. Or, barring any unforeseen opposition, I think that the chances of me building the church are pretty fair. No, his pronouncement is a unilateral, unequivocal, non-negotiable declaration when he said, I will build my church. This is what we learned about the certainty of the church, and it is a great comfort to God's people. It should be a great comfort for you. I think, however, when I go overseas, when I go over to countries that they don't want me to name, um, and their church buildings are unmarked, you would never find them if you weren't led there by a believer. Those people, when they hear this message, they are so encouraged, so encouraged, because the enemies of the cross who are in political positions are determined to stamp out the church. They need this message, but you need this message as well. You need to know it. In the face of those who say, we've got to get more creative, we've got to spend more money, we've got to, we've got to make it slicker and darker and more trendy, that's not true. 
And if we don't do those things, the church isn't going to die. The church might even be more focused on what it should be focused upon, namely Christ and his word. Our only concern should be that at the end, we will be found faithful to have have done and be doing when he arrives the things that he has commanded. This is the foundation of the church and the certainty of the church. And next, and starting with this message, the preciousness of the church. I told you I, I, I was looking forward to this part. If you're wondering what part that was, I'm telling you now, this is that part of the sermon. If I don't make it any further, uh, this will be good enough the preciousness of the church. Building the church is not just some kind of religious exercise or impersonal enterprise on the part of Jesus. The church is Christ's most precious possession. I am convinced of that. I want you to be convinced of that, church. He paid the highest conceivable price for her. What's the most expensive thing you ever bought? Your house? You probably haven't bought it yet. You're probably still paying on it. Um, Maybe the the ring you gave your fiancé. Maybe it's that car you drive. Those are infinitesimally microscopic compared to the price Jesus paid for his church. It is inconceivable that God should step off of his throne and purposely be humiliated and executed to bleed out so that we wouldn't have to, so that we would be saved. Not from our sin, there is a sense in which we are saved from our sin, but we are being saved from the wrath of God. Remember when... um, my son was going to college, Union, Union University. It's hard to say together, apparently. And the tornado came. And uh, Caleb Helms, who might be down the hall, was an RA. My son was just a student. Thankfully, the RAs all did their job when the sirens sounded. And my son said, I live in Texas. We get tornadoes all the time. They never do anything. But he reluctantly did what he was supposed to do. He left his upper room and went down to a lower room and sat there playing his guitar until he heard the train coming. And then as he was running for the bathroom, the ceiling collapsed on the door. The other kids were getting behind in the bathroom. He was able to squeak in. When they came out 10 minutes later, the school was gone. And someone in the media heard that I had a son down there. So I went down to get my car, which was upside down, um, or at least to get the stuff out of the car and bring my boy home, uh, the media started calling me, KCBI, local news, and they said, what was it like? And I tried to say this consistently, and it went like this. It was like the grace of God rescuing his people from the wrath of God. It never made it into the news. I thought it was a great line, you know. (laughs) But it's theologically correct. When you are born again, you are saved from what? God saves you from God. He rescues you from the wrath of God. And how could he do that? But only by paying the ultimate price himself for us. Instead of us experiencing the wrath, the full fury of the wrath of God, Jesus bore the full fury of the wrath of God. And he did it for his church. Don't tell me Jesus doesn't love his church. Don't tell me Jesus isn't committed enough to fulfill his promise. He who spoke and everything that exists came into existence. He can't save his church. Come on, that's nonsense. You're not thinking properly. The church is described as, first of all, as Christ's body. 
Isn't that interesting? That the inspired author would tell us this is how Jesus thinks of his church. This is Christ's body over which he is head. I mean, can there be any more personal connection between two things as a body and its head? Indeed, the two are one. So much so that Jesus views any attack on the church as a personal attack upon himself. You say, really, is, is that true? Well, let me show you from Scripture, Acts 9, verse 4, when Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, this was before he got his other name, Paul, Jesus, Jesus steps in and intervenes and arrests Paul with a blinding light, literally blinding. And he cries out to Saul from someplace he couldn't see and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what's the next word? Me. This is personal. You're persecuting me. I'm the head. This is my body. This is my, well, I won't add the other narrative, I mean the other metaphor yet, it's coming. Jesus said at the, at the judgment, he will say to the condemned, inasmuch as you have shown contempt for the least of these, my brethren, you have shown contempt toward, what's the next word? Me. As far as God is concerned, as far as Jesus is concerned, there's no separation. When Paul uses the phrase repeatedly, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, I went through the book of Ephesians and just highlighted every time he says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That is the most precious doctrine in the world, in the Bible. We are united with Christ. He is the head. We are the body. He cares about us. He loves us. This is a very personal issue with Jesus. The church is his body. She is precious to him. He values her above anything else in creation. And so what I want you to hear as an implication or application for you is you should love the church. Stop having a low opinion of the church. Stop treating her badly. Stop failing to give the attention that you should give her. Stop failing to sacrifice for her the way you should sacrifice for her. Secondly, the church is not only Jesus' body, she is Christ's bride. It's beautiful. Could God have chosen any better analogy to portray the intimacy between Christ and the people he loves? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. You say, Ephesians 5, isn't that that marriage text? Exactly. But if you read the text, what you repeatedly hear is, but I'm talking about the church. And as you're reading it, you're thinking, is he, is he talking about marriage or is he talking about Jesus and the church? Answer, yes. So Paul says in Ephesians 5, he loved her so much that he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might, this is a really interesting phrase because every marriage I've ever done, the father presents the bride to the young man. Jesus is the young man. He is the groom, and so it's worded like this, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. He's created the church. He purchased her, and now he is bringing her to himself. And Paul goes on to say that a husband is to love his wife as he loves his own body, and notice the parallel phrase here. It's the body of Christ. And he's saying, man, you, you, the purpose for your living is to show the world what God is like, what Christ is like, what the gospel is like. 
And so take your cues from Jesus. Jesus loves his own body in such a way that he nourishes and cherishes her. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. You see the picture here? The church is precious to Jesus. And Paul's application of that reality, husbands, is that you should treat your wife as precious, and you should provide for her, and you should cherish her, because that's how Jesus treats his church. The church is precious to him. He gave his life for her, and now, as he awaits the day of his return, he nourishes her, and he cherishes her. The word nourish here means to provide for. Uh, you know, one of the things that drives me batty and makes me angry in counseling is when a couple comes to the church and I find out the problem is the husband doesn't have a job, isn't looking for a job, and he's able to work. You know, I just want to say, can we just step in the back alley for just a minute? <laughs> There's an unsanctified version of Pastor Dan that would like to meet you. This is not Jesus. He makes sure she is well taken care of, has everything that she needs. Nothing escapes his notice. The whole business from the Apostle Peter that um, we as husbands should live with our wives in an understanding way. They sh you should be getting to know her and know her and know her and know her and know her for the purpose of providing for her. You're attentive, you're watching, you're listening. You've got a place on your cell phone, perhaps, the things that she likes and things she tells you she no longer likes, and you cross out the thing that she used to like. <laughs> it's confusing. <laughs> Jesus is never confused. <laughs> Nothing ever escapes his notice. He knows when she's hungry. She, he cares when she's sick suffering, or lonely, or in pain, or just plain tired. And he provides for her. That's what it means to nourish her. So get a job. Keep your job. The word cherish here, it means, this is wonderful. I'll spell it for you so you don't mishear this word. It means, to cherish means to warm, W-A-R-M, as in Mary, to warm, to comfort, to tenderly care for. It conveys the kind of affection that's behind Christ's ministry to his bride and the kind of affection, men, that we should have toward ours. I often ask men, you know, I praise the Lord that you provide for your wife, and uh, she's sitting right in front of me. If I were to ask her, does she feel cherished by you? What would she say? This is not a message about marriage, but I want you to feel this. He doesn't approach her like a hired servant. This is, she is not his daughter to command and to discipline and to scold. This is his wife. His ministry isn't motivated by a sense of duty. He sanctifies her and serves her out of pure delight. And even when he's not delighting in her, he knows the definition of love. To love is, is not necessarily to, to feel good about her. It, it is to give to her what she needs that you have because God wants you to. And yet Jesus always is beyond that. He cherishes his church in ways that are beyond any affection that we can know. 
He cherishes her like a precious bride. You remember, men? I remember when I met my future wife. I remember what she was wearing. I remember where she was standing. I remember how she responded uh, when I broke that, that dumb cup that said, I love being single, and out came a ring. I remember her face. I remember what she said. Couldn't wait for the day we got married. And now it's been 33 years. And you know what? It, I'm not Jesus, and she's not the church. But, but I feel this. I know what Jesus is talking about. It's wonderful, isn't it? That God, when he communicates truth for us, so often communicates it in a way that we can understand. Because in some sense, in some sense that is different and yet parallels, it is the same. You see the intimacy here? Jesus says, okay, so it's, I will build my, I will build my church, right? So here's what I want to emphasize. Not I will build. We already talked about that. I will build, what's the next word? My church. This is my church. Pastor, this isn't your church. Uh, seminary professor, this is not your church. Elders, this is not your church. This belongs to Christ. You're, a, you're an underservant. You're a an under-shepherd, you're a servant. Let me introduce you to my wife. It's as if, you know, if my wife were here today and I were to introduce you for the first time, uh, or maybe right after we got married, I remember when I introduced her to my parents, and it went something like this. Um, this, is, this is the woman I'm going to marry. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Preparations are almost complete. The bride is making herself ready, Jesus says. I'm preparing a place for her in my father's house. And soon we will celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that could be today, beloved. See, beloved, there is this intimacy between Christ and his church. And he delights to speak of her as his own body and his precious bride. I, I remember in the early years after Chris and I were married, I would sometimes just walk up to her randomly, put my arms around her, and whisper in her ear, mine, 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 with delight. And she would say, stop that, get away from me. <laughs> Which is exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah. In a similar way, Jesus points at the church and he says, mine, mine, mine. He delights in her. She is precious to him. Third, the church is made, of, made up of God's children. Again, this is a very personal and intimate expression, Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Isn't that interesting? If you were to not hear me read it, you may have thought it would have said, he gave himself up for you. And you would have think, me? No, no, no. He says, us. He's talking about the church, the plural pronouns all through Ephesians and other places that it talks to the church and about the church are critical. They're important. We are his children. In 1 John 3, 1, we read, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called, what? Children of God. So we're not... We're not just the body, we're not just the bride, we're his, his household. We live in his house. He's our father. We are his children. And beloved, my point is simply this, that Christ's interests in building the church are not impersonal. They are very, very personal. 
This is not a secondhand business enterprise for Jesus. He loves the church. His intimacy with her is like that of, of a body and its head, like a bride to her husband, like, like, a, like children to their gracious, loving, perfect, never-make-a-mistake father, who always says, by the way, listen, just always come to me. Always come to me. If you got a question, ask. I'm available. If you don't know where I am, seek. I'm, I'm right here. If I'm, if I'm in my study and you're wondering, geez, should I bother him? Knock. The door will open to you. I love you. You are my children. You are never on the outside with God. Even when you sin, you are never on the outside. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to repent. You do need to repent. And keep on repenting. Believe and keep on believing. But he never loves you less. And he is more eager to restore you than you are to be restored. And so we've learned about the foundation of the church, the certainty of the church, the preciousness of the church. Let's talk a little bit about the invincibility of the church. Back in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says these words, I will build my church and the gates of hell, it says in the ESV, or Hades, maybe in your translation, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now this is a phrase that's often misunderstood. And Jesus is not suggesting that the church will be able to defend itself from the attack of evil forces. I know that because gates are not offensive weapons. You don't charge the army, the enemy, with a gate. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Take it off of your front porch or your front lawn and charge the enemy with a gate. Uh, that's not what gates do. Gates are defensive. And so whatever... Hades is, it's on the defense, and Jesus is on the offense. This is the church militant. And so, Jesus was picturing Hades as perhaps a prison, which lacks the power to defend itself against the offensive siege that Jesus launches against it. And then we're left with the question, then, if Jesus is attacking Hades and somehow breaking the gates of Hades, then what in the world is Hades? That's a good question. Um, Hades is a Greek translation of the word, um, well, it is the Greek translation of the word Hades, and it, it doesn't mean hell but rather it means the abode of the dead. It means the grave. It is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word sheol. It just means, I mean, it's the, it's the place where you put a dead body. It's the grave, and, and everyone knows, once you're in the grave, you don't come out of the grave, right? The King James translates it hell. But that's a bit misleading. Jesus wasn't referring to the place of punishment and eternal torment, which is made for the devil and his angels. Rather, he was simply speaking about death and the grave. And so Jesus says, the gates of Hades, that is, the, the gates of the grave will not overpower it. He's, he's telling his disciples that, listen carefully, death and the grave lack the power to keep Jesus' people. Now let me say it another way. They may kill you, but that doesn't mean they can keep you. The church around the world is persecuted. Not so much here in America yet, but around the world, persecuted and killed for their faith. And you know what? You know you read the great eight, uh, Romans 8, and there's that section. I mean, there's a couple of sections in there that we love to quote. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And 
and, the, and then the whole golden train, uh, chain of salvation. And, and we're, we're not really drawn to that section where Paul says, we, we are like sheep being killed all day long. What is, that's not a happy thought. What does that mean? It means he's writing to a persecuted church, and they were being killed all day long. And what, you know what Paul is saying? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Kill them, and they will be free. The gates of Hades cannot hold them. And we know that because of Jesus. How so? Well, you remember what happened he, when he died? He was put in the grave. He experienced death. He was in the abode of the dead. He was in Sheol. And yet Sheol, Hades, the gates of Hades, the stone of Hades could not hold him. He's risen. He's risen. You should say amen, glory, hallelujah, or something. Jump up and clap. Jesus Christ is alive. He's risen. And because of his resurrection, you will be raised. And all of his church will be raised. You can't kill the church. Any more than you can kill Christ. Death could not hold Jesus in the grave, and it will not be able to hold a single man, woman, boy, or girl who belongs to him on that day. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection? Not Jesus' resurrection so much. He says a little bit about that, but mostly it's, it's about our resurrection. He cries out. This is almost like a hymn. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's taunting death. You may take me, but you can't keep me. More specifically, Jesus' words here are a promise of resurrection for all who believe. Revelation 1.18, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and, what's the next word? Hades. You know, it's pretty hard to defend against your enemy if the, if the enemy has the keys to your castle. Jesus says, I got the keys. I have the keys. And when I launch my assault, it's over. You can't keep my people in prison. You can't keep them in the grave. And so Christ is building the church. It's an, it's an invincible endeavor. It will be achieved by the omnipotent power of God himself so that not even death, the archenemy of all mankind, not even death will be able to thwart Christ's plan. Don't tell me that if we don't get creative and reinvent ourselves, the church is going to die. It's not going to die. Beloved, think of how hope-giving this is for our persecuted brothers and sisters. These dear saints who desire to be pleasing to the Lord all the way to the cross, if necessary, even unto death. They love the church. And they subject themselves to great risk by gathering with the church. You know why America exists as it does with the laws that we have and are losing? It's because there was a, a group of believers persecuted believers who were always on the run in Scooby, Scrooby, England. Not Scooby, that's a cartoon. <laughs> Scrooby, England. And they'd go to the, to the water waiting for the boat and the guards would come and arrest them and they'd put them in jail and they would separate and they would meet at night and they were, and finally they, they, they got on the Mayflower and, and half of them did and they came over and they started what became this new land. I know that there were others here before, but they didn't, bring, they didn't bring their Geneva Bibles like the pilgrims did. They didn't love Jesus. They were constantly being persecuted. And yet, ultimately, there was no fear of the church being stamped out. 
it, it, it seems to be like fire. You know, you, you stamp on it, and uh, if the wind is blowing, the spirit's blowing, the fire's just going to grow. You may put it out one place, and it'll grow in another. Somehow, the church grows more faithfully and um, in terms of numbers, more gloriously under persecution than at any other time. When they're killing our brothers and sisters, the church just grows. Now, one last thing we need to see. We've discovered the foundation of the church, the certainty of the church, the preciousness of the church, the invincibility of the church, and finally, in verse 19, we're instructed about the authority of the church. Look at verse 19. Here Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I know this is a controversial passage even among evangelicals, and it's a big controversy between uh, the Roman Catholic Church and evangelicals, the Protestant churches. Um, the Catholic Church teaches that Christ was instituting the rite of absolution for the first pope um, in this promise that Jesus gave, that the pope has the, the freedom and the right, the authority to forgive sins. And so back pre-Reformation days, one of the things that upset Martin Luther was, in, was when uh, that, that priest, Tetzel, uh, brought the papal bull, so there was a, 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 a statement from the Pope that said, if you give money um, into uh, the coffer for St. Peter's to be built, then there will be, there will be complete absolution for you means all of your sins will be forgiven. And so live however you want, and um, you will still be saved. Um, Tesso even have, had a little jingle. He said, um, when the, because he, they taught that you could, you could also release people who were in purgatory by giving money. So he said, um, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It's cute. So Martin Luther responded, when the coin falls in the pitcher, the Pope gets all the richer. <laughs> now, he was on the attack. But this is, this is Catholic doctrine. And it's, a, it's perhaps a pitiful summary of this doctrine, but pretty close. The Pope himself would then have final authority on the salvation of, uh, of men, whether they were lost or saved. But let's take a moment to seek counsel from the Word of God before we concede to this interpretation. First notice with me in John chapter 20, if you could just uh, flip forward just a little bit into the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. And Jesus gives a similar authority to the apostles and not just to Peter. Verses... Um, 19 through 23, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, the Lord being locked, uh, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now listen carefully. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now I know there, there may be some who disagree with my interpretation of this, but I'm going to give it to you. Um, Specifically, Jesus is saying, I think that a brother who sins, well, let me back up again. Um, it appears to me that, that all the disciples here were in the room. If I understand the gospel narratives at this point, when they show up, it's more than Peter, James, and John. It's more than all the disciples minus Judas. Uh, there's a good number of people there. He's speaking to the disciples, and after proving by his scars, that he's really 
himself and not a ghost. He commissions them in verse 21. And then after breathing on them to, to receive the Holy Spirit, empowering them for the work, he says to them, if you, plural, forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven, and if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And so, once again, it seems in Matthew 16, Jesus was speaking to Peter as a representative of all the disciples, all the apostles. Now look with me at another important text here in Matthew 18, verses, uh, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and you're familiar with that. I'm not going to take the time to read it. We often refer to this as uh, church discipline, the passage on church discipline. Specifically, Jesus is saying that a brother who sins must be confronted, but if he refuses to repent, he should be confronted again with two witnesses. And then if he refuses to repent again, uh, even after telling it to the church, then, um, then he should be treated like an a unbeliever. The Gentile and the tax collector, verse 17 says. And after all of that explanation, then Jesus says these words in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think he's talking about men's souls. I think he's talking about believer or unbeliever. After all the explanation, it comes down to this. Truly I say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And let's, let's just take a few more minutes here to make a couple more observations of the text. Jesus' declaration here is not to Peter, but to all the disciples, or all the apostles. His words apply to all believers, I think. Second, binding and loosing has nothing to do with evil spirits. And I just say that not because it's here in the text, it's not, but because so many times when uh, our charismatic brothers, and many of them are brothers, uh, talk about binding this spirit or loosing that, uh, that's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. Remember the context is, is not spiritual warfare or how to get answers to prayer. And I say that because, you know, previous to that statement, he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. Listen, this whole context is about church discipline. The whole context is about church discipline. It's taking people who declare that they're believers, who are living in sin, and this is how you address them. And I think at the end of chapter 18, uh, Matthew 18, when Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am with you. What he's saying is, um, what I'm asking you to do is really difficult. I get it. You're going to make a pronouncement about this person. They are in their sin. God sees them in their sin. They must be treated as if they are unbelievers. And that's going to be hard. Nobody wants to do that. No elder body wants to do that. Elder board wants to do that. Nobody wants to do that. It's hard. I mean, who do I, who am I to have the authority to say, you cannot participate in the Lord's table or fellowship with God's people in worship? And Jesus is saying, you have the authority. I've given it to you. And I know it's going to be hard, but here's what you need to know. When two or three of you gather together for this purpose, you got to make that decision, make the decision, and I am with you. I am with you. So what is bound is the sin and guilt of the unrepentant person. What is loosed, if he repents, is the person's sin and guilt. As John MacArthur notes, any believer can affirm those conditions on the basis of how someone responds to a call to repentance. The issue in the next verse on which two of you agree, still quoting, on how to handle sinning members of the church, Jesus was saying that the authority to deal with sin is granted to any assembly as small as two or three gathered together in my name. Beloved, this is important. Because by what authority do we ever practice church discipline? 
Who gave you the authority to say, you know what? You're living in sin. And God is displeased with that. Not just with the sin, he's displeased with you. And a lot is at stake here. I, I plead with you to repent. You are in your sin. I plead with you to repent and be restored. And if you, if you don't, then Jesus has told us what to do and we don't want to do it. But we will because we have the authority to do so and the re responsibility. So clearly Jesus isn't making Peter the head of the church. And that's why I've repeatedly said he's not speaking merely to Peter, but all of the disciples, the apostles there. Jesus was simply commissioning Peter and the other disciples to make the kingdom message, the word of God, authoritative in the life of the church. And by the way, here's where it becomes really practical. Uh, there are a lot of Christians maybe most evangelical Christians in America who have been taught to say, or who have been taught to think like this, don't ever question a person's salvation. Don't ever question a person's salvation. And to that I say, nonsense. If there is just cause, the most loving thing in the world you could do is tell that person, listen, you're living in unbelief. By your own admission, I mean, there's so much in your life that just shouts unbelief, 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 unbelief. And you know what? At Calvary Bible Church, we have a special name for people who live in unbelief. We call them unbeliever. And I can't tell you how many times I've said that to people. And on, on some occasions, they just get mad and they, I never see them again. And on other occasions, they say, are you questioning my salvation? And I say, Absolutely, I'm questioning your salvation. And they say, no one has ever done that before. And I could tell you story after story after story of people who have repented and come to Christ because somebody questioned the veracity of their claim to know Jesus. Listen, this is warfare. This isn't patty cake. This isn't happy slappy, come to church and pat each other on the back. You know, I want to know, do you know Jesus? And is there evidence? I, I teach our counselors, assume they're an unbeliever until there's enough evidence to the contrary. Help them. And you know what? A lot of people come in and, and they truly know Jesus, and we don't spend a lot of time on that. In other cases, I really want them to examine themselves. We're going to spend a lot of time on that because there's an awful lot of religious people who don't know Christ. So clearly Jesus wasn't making Peter any kind of pope. He wasn't giving him the authority for absolution. God has placed the church in the world and commanded us to preach the gospel. If we fail to do that, if we get sidetracked on a bunch of other things and cloud the gospel and compromise his word, we forfeit the only authority we have to use the keys of the kingdom. No one will ever gain entrance into heaven without someone in the church explaining to them what the apostles taught about Jesus' work, his finished work, his atoning work, his completed work on the cross. On the other hand, when the church is faithful to God and his word, we can speak with authority to the issues in the church and to an unbelieving world. We can say with authority that an unrepentant sinner, we can tell them, you are bound in your sin and you have no hope of eternal life un unless you repent. And to a person who repents, we have the authority of Christ to say, your sins have been forgiven. And completely forgiven. And we've seen this in very practical ways over the decades here at Calvary Bible Church. There have been men who have come through, they were addicted to pornography. There was evidence in their life that they were just lost, and that was the problem. They were lost. I mean, that's, that's not always the problem, but that was the problem in, in several cases. And, and we'll say, listen, we're going to help you. Um, you need to repent of this. They repent. We're going to restore you, but it's going to take time. We're going to spend a year with you. We're going to spend a year with you. And at the end of the year, if you have not gone back to your sin, 
then you will be released. You'll be loosed from this, right? And, 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 and it's going to be wonderful. But if you, if you go back to it, then the clock starts over again. We start the year over again. That's not always happy. But here's what happens when we get to the end. When we get to the end, and this has been great, hasn't it? Some of you guys who used to be elders at Calvary back in those years, and we were doing that more often than we have to do now, praise God. And we get to the end of that year, and we say, praise God. And, and can you come over to our house on Thursday night? Well, yeah, Pastor, why? And, and invite anybody who knows about your sin that would rejoice with you. Why? Because we're going to kill the fatted calf. That's why. And well, what do you mean? We're ordering barbecue from the local <laughs> Spring Creek, and we're going to have a feast. My son, he's come home. He's repented. And it's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to look at that brother and say, from this moment on, you are free. You are free to participate in every aspect of the church. What do you want to do? Do it. Do it with our blessing. Get involved. Take the Lord's table. Be involved in ministry. You are loosed. And the evidence is that you, you've done this. You've done what the elders have asked you to do. You, you've done for the past year what God has always wanted you to do. The evidence is obvious that God has changed your heart. You are loosed. Enjoy that. Relish it. Glory in it. Because it isn't from us. It is from the one who loves you with an infinite love. It is a gift from Jesus. Beloved, the church does have authority. The elders, however, do not have authority to go beyond what is written. We don't have the authority to tell you you can't marry this Christian person or that Christian person. We can't tell you you can't take this job or that job. We can't tell you where to sit in church, you know. And uh, We're not going to meddle in your life in those ways and tell you you must do what we think is right. But you know what? The Word of God sets up our parameters and gives us the authority to do the very few things that God commands us to do and to do it without wavering. Confronting sin is one of those things. And telling people that they are forgiven is another. The key point here is that Jesus has given his church authority. But it is not anything more than a limited, delegated authority. And it is rather narrow. Jesus is the head of this church. And God's word is the means by which we know what he wants done. And so let me summarize what we've learned about the church so far. We know that the church is God's most precious possession. He founded her on the teaching of the apostles and their ministry. He guarantees that her completion is certain. He relates to her personally and intimately. He makes the church invincible until he returns, and he gives her authority to do the things that Jesus has commanded them to do. I don't know about you, but I think that's glorious. And why wouldn't you want to be a member of the church? Why wouldn't you sacrifice for the church? Why wouldn't you be in a small group where you can fellowship with one another? Maybe there's good reasons why you couldn't make it. But are they really good reasons? Are you really fellowshipping? Are you really engaging in the one another's of Scripture? If not then you've got some changes that need to take place because you don't love the church like Jesus loves the church, like he wants you to love the church. And frankly, there is no doubt some of you here who are not even part of Christ's church. You hear all of this stuff, you've been here for week after week after week, and you keep hearing these things. Maybe you always thought you were a Christian, and it's becoming clear to you from the word of God that that's not true. Can I just say to you, it's time. It's time for you to repent and believe. It's time for you to come to Jesus and say, would you, would you accept me based on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone? Would you save me? Would you rescue me? Would you give me eternal life? I don't, I don't know why I suddenly believe, but in my heart right now, I just believe. Would you fan that into 
a great flame in my heart. Would you change me? Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, I'm yours. Do with me whatever you want. You're Lord. From this moment on, I am your servant. Would you come to Christ on his terms? His promise is, no matter what your sin, it's not bigger than God. It's not greater than his grace. And anyone who comes to him will be accepted by him. And so come. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you because our love for you is infinitesimally small compared to your mighty, awesome, glorious love for your church. And your church, not only collectively, but individually. Lord, we praise you for that. Praise you for these precious truths. And I pray, Father, that if at any point I am mistaken in these things, that you would correct me and that you would instruct your church and protect us from error. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with a love for one another and a love for the lost and mostly a love for Christ. Cause us to love him more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.